The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. In lieu of fun. Click! Okay, I'm here. And we're live. We are live with Linda Greenhouse, our guest. You see, it was dramatic. You know, we almost lost her. But here she is. It is. What's the date? Monday, um, November 15th, the Ides of November, 2021, 5.04 p.m. We are four minutes late because of the treachery of Crowdcast, and we're really not allowed to have fun anymore, Um, but we are allowed to have Linda Greenhouse to explain just how little fun we're allowed to have on the Supreme Court and the events that led to the final death of fun on the Supreme Court. Linda Greenhouse, it is great to see you again. It has been a very long time. Well, it, it feels like a long time even since I saw Scott and we teach in the same building. Yeah, no, that, that's right. And, and one of the great thing, and one of the, the best things about Yale Law School is that lunch that in the faculty uh, dining Scott, room. Scott, I'm having trouble uh, hearing you, actually. Are you? Can um, you hear me okay? Yes, I hear you fine, but I don't hear Scott. Okay, so Scott, talk loudly. Yeah, talk loudly. Can you hear hear me? Can you hear me, Linda? Yes. Okay, I was going to say, the best thing about Yale Law School uh, used to be um, going to lunch and seeing Linda um, at the the faculty dining room and then saying, Linda, what's up with the law? Um, And Linda would you know, she's just like knows everything. Um, and so uh, I, it's been, you know, uh, when it, like down the list of very bad things about the pandemic, but one of them is that I don't get to talk to you anymore. So, so Linda, tell us about your book. The title seems self-explanatory, but um, uh, how did you come to be writing it? And, 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 and what is the story that it tells? Yeah, I, should, I wish I could hold up a picture of it. Um, but, uh, I, 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 you all don't have to put one. Wait, let me ask I'll you. Put a, I'll put a link in the chat. I yeah. can do one better than that. While you're talking, Scott is going to put up a link, and I am going to share it, an image of it. Um, so tell us about it. Okay, so what this book is the chronicle of the term, the amazing term that, it, that began, it began with the death of Ruth Ginsburg and soon thereafter acquired Amy Coney Barrett. And so it tells the tale of what happened that term with the Trump justices. It, it tells it in real time. I wrote that, thank you. I wrote uh, each chapter as that month unfolded I didn't go back to fix it up. I wrote about an argument and predicted an outcome and it didn't quite turn out that way. I didn't go back and make myself look smart. But what I tried to do was explain where, what happened that term, where that came from, 
and what happened and then the implications for the current term and the terms ahead of, of what happened. And what, um, I, you know, in broad strokes, that story is sort of a known one. I, I, I mean, the, the major events in it are, are were front page news the day they happened. I assume, because you're you, that the telling of it involves a lot of analysis and a lot of um, uh, information that is not necessarily previously public. What, it, what, what is the, the texture of the story? So the texture is, I mean, I try to contextualize everything because, of course, as, as you know and as people on this call know, but the general public doesn't. Uh, you know, Supreme Court cases don't just fall out of the sky. Uh, they come with a history. They come in service of an agenda. So what was the agenda? And who are these people? So, for instance, the first chapter, which is July 2020, before the term began, I titled uh, The Triumph of John Roberts. So what does that mean? That means coming out of October term 2019, he was just riding high. He was in the majority in every term, in every case that counted. In fact, in every case except two, amazing record. Uh, he really held the reins of power on that court. There were four justices to his left, four justices to his right, and he was the, the man who made the difference. So the, what, what there was to chronicle was how that eroded, how rapidly it eroded. So, you know, Amy Barrett comes on the court Begin end of October. Within a couple of weeks, the court had flipped on the relationship between public health and religious practice, right? So these were the series of cases chat with challenges brought by churches and religious entities against the, the capacity limitations that various jurisdictions had put on all kinds of venues, including houses of worship. The court back in the spring and summer of 2020, when Ruth Ginsburg was still on the court, had rejected those challenges. Justice Barrett comes on the court and Thanksgiving Eve, people may remember, all of a sudden it's five to four the other way. And the New York um, COVID capacity limits were struck down. This continues in the term until we end up uh, with the sort of Ultimate one of these cases, a shadow dot, all these are shadow docket cases, ends up with Tandon against Newsom in April, where the court overturns um, a, a California regulation and really, really nails down the, the most favored nation status for religion that the court had been had been driving towards. So that the religion is really a theme in this term, in part because of the you know, the randomness of, of the docket, there was no, um, uh, say there was no affirmative action case on the docket. There was, of course, a major voting rights case that the term ended up with, but, you know, you kind of deal with the, with the material that you have. But um, the, the court's appetite for free exercise cases just seems boundless. Um, so that, you know, that's an inherent part, part of the story. Uh, uh, maybe you could just explain to uh, everyone what the Now you're really is. quiet, Scott. Yeah, it's, not, oh, I, 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 it's not working. I, I lowered it. Uh, that's why, because of the fan. 
Okay. I, I, I'll take care of it. You, you go. Okay. Um, so, you know, one question I have here is about the chief. So I look at Roberts and say, okay, the first chapter of your book is, you know, he's riding high. It's, it's finally his court. He's not just the chief justice, but Anthony Kennedy's gone. He's the chief justice and the swing vote. That's a pretty sweet place to be. Now, all of a sudden, on the one hand, the block that he leads, which or which he uh, is a part of, which of course he would deny, but is uh, a reality, is larger. On the other hand, his power is dramatically diminished as a result of her addition to the court. Do you have the sense that Roberts regards uh, r regards the the shift in, from Ginsburg to uh, to Coney Barrett as uh, a desirable thing or an undesirable thing or just one of the uh, thing you know waves he has to ride. Well, of course, I don't know what's in the man's uh, head. I think he sees it as a challenge. I mean, it's, it's very ironic because let's go back for a minute to 2016. It looked like Hillary Clinton was going to get elected, right? It looked like President Clinton was going to be able to fill the Scalia vacancy that Mitch McConnell had hijacked to all those final months of the Obama administration. Had that been the case, Roberts would have been out in the cold because there would have been a solid five-person liberal bloc and Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have been the head of it as the senior associate justice on that side of the street. He escapes that fate with Trump's election. And yet because of Trump's election, he's also, you know, hanging out there, uh, unable to really uh, commandeer the the course of events. So, so the, the irony is rich. And, uh, you know, what he thinks about it, I think he's, it puts him to the test of using every skill he has, and he has a lot of skills. I mean, the kind of um, deus ex machina that he found to um, get the court out of the box in the in Fulton uh, against Philadelphia, the big religion case of the term. And he managed to do it. He got nine votes for the outcome that he wanted, which was to say that um, Philadelphia didn't have the right to demand that a Catholic social service agency violate its, quote, you know, religious exercise uh, by making them uh, uh, regard same-sex married couples as appropriate foster parents. Um, he avoided uh, overturning a precedent. Uh, he managed to reduce that precedent to rubble without saying so, it was really a tour de force. And, and um, you know, you have to give him a lot of credit as, as the, the master of that kind of thing. But, but uh, Justice Barrett's presence on the court means that he's gonna have to be working overtime like that in case after case after case. Right. Can, can everyone hear me now? Because Mickey gave me instructions <laughs> how to fix it. Wait, is he, I, now Ben is disappeared. 
Now, Ben, I can't hear you. Oh, that's not your great. We, we can hear you. Uh, okay. We've got a fair bit of fan noise with you, so just keep yourself muted when you're not talking. You got it. Sorry about it. Sorry about this, everyone. So one of the things that you mentioned was the shadow docket, and I was hoping you could just describe to people what the shadow docket is and whether you think that the shadow docket is, a, is one of those techniques that the chief is using in order to kind of paper over some of the uh, uh, perhaps radicalism of uh, what the court is doing. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say the chief is using it. I think others are using it. Um, so, so what's the shadow docket? It, it's every court has a, a capacity to deal with emergency cases that come up. Because uh, say it's the emergency docket. Shadow docket is kind of a new and, uh, as Justice Alito told us in a speech he gave at Notre Dame, um, a, a kind of a pejorative way of describing something that, for many years, was simply routine you know, emergency uh, requests for emergency interventions of one sort or another come, come up to the court. What's, what, was, what was different this term as the culmination of, of, a, of a trend during the Trump years and the, uh, the court's relationship to the Trump uh, executive branch is that the court started actually making law, making substantive law off the shadow docket. And I think that's very problematic. I mean, uh, the Tandon against Newsom case, the California COVID case that I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, you know, that made new law about um, the free exercise clause. I could give the details of that case to illustrate that, but I, I don't want to get deeper into the weeds than, than you guys uh, want me to. So I think, you know, that's that's the issue. And, and so what is problematic about that? Well, it's, it's the utter lack of transparency. Because when the court grants a case, gives plenary re review to a case, grants cert, uh, you know, the public's on notice. Um, you know, uh, months pass and briefs come in and the court hears oral argument, not exactly in public, but the transcript, these days they're streaming oral arguments live and the transcript goes up within a couple of hours. The briefs are online and so on and so on. So it, it kind of, you know, brings the public into a conversation about whatever the question is. When something comes up on the shadow docket, and Tandon against Newsom is a perfect example of what's wrong with it. So why did the court even even deal with that case when the order that was under attack was going to expire in a few days? It was just going to go away. But the Conservatives grabbed onto that case because it was they they viewed it as a vehicle for accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish. Had they waited a week, the case would have been mooted out and gone away. So, um, so that's the problem that we're dealing with, I think. Go ahead, Scott. You, uh, you're, uh, uh, is it, you were deprived is it of questions. Is it is it is it better now? It's loud. No. I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. Um, okay. Um, so let, you're, you're perfectly what, audible. Okay. Uh, so, so why did you? Uh, so the, you know, y you've covered the court uh, for the New York Times, like for what, like thirty years? Yeah. Um, um, and 
Um, and uh, you've all, and, and you've been covering the court for 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 longer um, than that, obviously. Um, after you left the Times, what made you write a, a book about this this um, term? Well, other than the fact that Randy Hubs came to me and said, "How'd you like to write a book about the coming term of the court?" That was a good reason, uh, but it was. Um, you know, a, a, a wonderful pandemic project for me, frankly. Uh, something that figured to be filled with consequential developments uh, on a uh, on a field of battle that I'm very familiar with. And you know, the other thing about it was my my first thought was, well, how can I write about the court? I'm not at the court. I'm you know, but of course, nobody was. Nobody, nobody is. Yeah. Was closed. And the justices were hearing their arguments by telephones. They were not face to face. So I mean, I wasn't face to face with them, but they weren't face to face with each other. So um, the kind of stars were aligned. It was just a really good project for me, and um, uh, you know, enabled me to deploy a lot of institutional knowledge uh, gained over over those many years, um, and and. You know, put it to, I hope, use. The the book starts out off um, uh, with um, uh, the story about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I was wondering if you could, were you close with her? And also, can you give us maybe some insight as to why she held on? as long as she did and whether she had any regrets about holding on um, for as long as she did? Well, you know, I, I, I certainly knew her. I don't want to claim an intimacy that, you know, that I didn't have, but I, I did know her over a period of years since before she went on the court, actually. Um, you know, I think she, she placed a bet that turned out to be not a good bet, which was in 2016 that Hillary, Hillary Clinton was going to get elected. I mean, how many of us assume the same thing, right? Uh, once that didn't happen, she was kind of stuck. She wasn't going to give Donald Trump a vacancy. Uh, she was going to hang on as long as she could. And, you know, she had a, a great and very significant last period of her career. I mean, it's during those years that she really, you know, became the, quote, notorious RBG with with the you know the the strong dissenting strong and quotable dissenting opinions that that wasn't her earlier mo uh, that was really only in the last um, you know seven eight nine years and uh, you know had she been able to hang on through her illness for another four months and President Joe Biden would have been able to fill the seat with a Democratic majority in the Senate. Um, you know, we all would have said, well, good for her, right? So, you know, it, it, she, she, she and we just got unlucky. In, in, light, in light of that, what do you make of Justice Breyer's um, decision to hold on? I know he claims it's um, to preserve the authority of the court and to keep politics out of, um, out of, uh, uh, the court's business, but that just does seem kind of a, like it, it's not only does it seem like a mistaken I, 
idea, um, uh, but also in light of Justice Ginsburg's uh, a bet that lost, um, it seems um, rather inexplicable, uh, at least to me it does. Well, I don't know. You know, I think people that went around Washington with sound trucks saying Briar retire, that put up posters saying Briar retire, uh, were completely self-defeating because the more they did that, uh, the more he had to think, if I retired under that kind of pressure from my liberal friends, I'll just be further politicizing the court. Now, maybe that's the right interpretation, maybe it's not, but um, you know, he had he had a good term this last term. He got major assignments, he wrote major opinions, and uh, you know, he 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 made his judgment and uh, every time I talk about the book, I'm asked to basically uh, use the occasion to tell Justice Breyer to retire, and I'm not going to do that. That's really up to him. I'm not that presumptuous. I'm curious how you assess the person of Amy Coney Barrett. So I look at her and I say, on the one hand, really not her fault what came before her. She didn't you know, she is not responsible for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's choices about, um, you know, um, staying on the court. She's obviously not responsible for the timing of her death. She's not responsible for uh, her own nomination either to the Seventh Circuit or to the Supreme Court, except in the limited sense of having accepted it. Uh, she is, she should be judged on her own merits as a as a justice as a legal mind on the other hand i look at her and i say okay this is somebody who played a political game uh with a very nefarious political figure in the waning days of his presidency uh and allowed herself to be nominated only in the condition in which Mitch McConnell would have to engage in some very, very aggressive activity in order to get her confirmed. And she actually should be judged for that. Um, that, that was a political decision on her part. Um, I'm kind of interested how you assess her. Well, I mean, so you're saying she had some kind of moral obligation not to accept the nomination? I, I'm, no, but I, I, I guess I'm saying, um, I, I mean, first of all, that uh, under those circumstances, when you accept the nomination, you really do accept that you are the, the agent of one political party in a way that is not true of Neil Gorsuch. Um, and I know people have a problem with Neil Gorsuch, but people's problem with Neil Gorsuch is that he was, that they disagree with him about things, right? That he got a seat that should have been Merrick Garland's seat. But nobody thinks Neil Gorsuch, you know, played that game. And I do think Amy Coney Barrett is a little different. She's somebody who, you know, had to decide, do I want to be an instrument of Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell in exchange for life tenure on the Supreme Court? And she did. And I'm curious, do you think that's unfair? No, I, I, 
don't get me wrong. I'm not accusing you, Ben, of sexism. But can you imagine a guy turning down a Supreme Court appointment under no matter what circumstances? Can you imagine that? All right. I, all right. I would say the exact same thing. And, um, and you know, I, I, I think when, when you accept a nomination four months before an election uh, or two months before an election, uh, you're setting yourself up for that. So let's let, let's try to look at this from her point of view. So let's assume that she does not view herself as an instrument of Donald Trump, that she persuaded herself that she was going to call the shots as she saw them and was not going to carry water for Trump and that she, uh, I expect, feels that she was a pretty good judge on the Seventh Circuit for the very short time that she was there and that she would... Um, you know, be an honest Supreme Court justice. So, so what do I think of her? I mean, really, my my jury's out, but I want to be fair to her. I think she's been, um, you know, demonized and kind of turned into a a, a one dimensional, uh, you know, Margaret Atwater type handmaiden uh, because of her religious background and so so on. Uh, the little bit that we've seen. Um, you know, kind of cuts in both directions. I mean, her immediate vote on that Thanksgiving Eve COVID case, you know, tells us something that I don't personally appreciate. Um, she obviously could have given John Roberts a fifth vote on September 1st that would have granted a stay of the Texas vigilante abortion law. You know, you need five votes to grant a stay and Roberts had four votes and, you know, like, where was she? So, and where was Kavanaugh and where was Gorsuch? And, you know, you go down, go down the list. On the other hand, her separate opinion in Fulton against Philadelphia was um, totally fascinating where, uh, you know, it, it, uh, to remind people. So um, the outcome of that vote had, uh, the outcome of that case had had nine votes for the Catholic Social Service Agency. Um, Alito issued a rip-roaring so-called concurring opinion in which she's basically accused Roberts and, and the others of wimping out and not directly uh, overturning employment division against Smith. And he just goes on for page after page. She writes a separate concurring opinion. It's just a few paragraphs that Kavanaugh joins. And she says, you know, before we rush into overturning something, we better make darn sure that we know what we're going to replace it with. And uh, there's some nuance involved in other First Amendment rights like speech. And, you know, we, we, we just better go slow. Now, as I say in the book, nuance is not a word that we have recently had occasion to associate with conservative justices, right? I mean, that... So I think she's she's in a kind of a, a, a go-slow frame on a case that, <clears throat> let's assume, the subject matter is of great interest to her. And I also read that opinion as a memo to Sam Alito saying, hey, don't take my vote for granted. You know, we're both conservative. We're both very serious Catholics, but my vote is not yours. So just calm down over there. Very interesting. And, and just a couple of weeks ago, a case from Maine, uh, a, a religious challenge to Maine's 
vaccine mandate came up on, on the shadow docket and uh, the court rejected the challenge over a dissenting opinion by Gorsuch, Alito and Thomas and not by Barrett who writes separately and again says, hey, uh, we have no occasion to weigh in here. Now that doesn't, that's not a pledge that against weighing in ever, you know, the, the OSHA case, the um, Biden administration uh, vaccine mandate for companies with a hundred or more employees, I, I expect will be coming up to the court and, you know, she didn't promise her vote one way or the other, but um, you know, I just see an effort to be um, modulated and 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 judicious uh, when when she thinks that's called for. And so, in that sense, you know, I, I think we may find her more interesting than we expected. How do you explain how she appears on the? I, I, by the way, I'm not saying you're the her defender, and, and, but I was just what I don't understand is how she could appear on the balcony that night at the White House with Donald Trump in light of everything, which may, which suggests to me that she may be living in a bubble in the way in which many of us live in a liberal bubble. She lives in a conservative bubble, um, whereby, um, you know, originalism and <clears throat> fed federalist society are, you know, they're, th these are kind of um, not radical doctrines and not radical organizations. They are just, um, you know, there's the ACLU, there's the there's FedSoc, there's originalism, there's living constitutionalism. Um, and D Donald Trump is a, is a president. Um, and he nominated me and he asked me. So without a sense of uh, the optics of it. Um, and, uh, another thing is when she came out a couple of weeks, uh, well, maybe two months ago or something, with the thing saying the court is not political. Um, and there's a way in which you could say the court is not political, and that's not a crazy thing to say. You could like disagree with it. Um, it's not a crazy thing to say. But in light of the last like year, you know, um, what's the what's the expression? Um, read the room. Um, like you're you're not the one to say that, um, and so there's a kind of cluelessness I find in her um, about about uh, politics, um, which suggests to me a kind of insulation um, from a larger uh, discourse. But I don't know. Do you think that that's right or not? Well, that, that scene on the Truman balcony that night. I, actually, I, I start the book with that scene because um, it was astonishing. Uh, the Democrats were very fretful about it. You know, she didn't get a single Democratic vote. This was the first time in more than 100 years that a Supreme Court nominee was confirmed without a single vote from the minority party. And, uh, you know, they called that whole scene out as just a gigantic photo op that was not appropriate. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm with you and with them on that. Um, you know, but again, I'm just trying to put myself in her place. So the president who's just um, gotten you nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court says, hey, uh, you know, we're going to have this outdoor uh, swearing in ceremony. Remember Clarence Thomas, who was the one justice in attendance, swore her in with the um, one of the two oaths. Uh, and, you know, then we'll we'll march up to the balcony and, you know, whatever. And she's going to say, no, I... 
I choose. She's going to do a Bartleby the Scrivener. You know, I, I choose not to. I, I think that's, you know, that's asking a lot. It just seems kind of, just, I, I mean, obviously, I don't need to tell you, but this is in the middle of a re-election at the very end when this is the big thing. So that you don't, I mean, not to see how um, it appears is either to, uh, to me, suggests either extreme partisanship or cluelessness. Um, I don't see. Maybe she did see, I mean, I, we don't know. Maybe she did see exactly how it appeared, but felt helpless to helpless to stop yeah, but, but that's kind of what I mean by the original sin of accepting the nomination. That, and and I, your point is well taken that you don't, you don't get to be a Seventh Circuit judge uh, 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 without th this is a class of people who don't turn down, you know, Supreme Court nominations. The universe of people who do is very, very small. Um, but I do think that, you know, I do think there's something to Scott's point that her comportment of herself in that period of time is consistent with somebody who does not understand that there is, that the president is a highly abnormal figure involved in an effort to do something highly undemocratic and that there was, there, there is this, this weird faint of normalcy in the way she interacted with the process that ma makes you wonder, did she not understand how abnormal the situation was or did she just not care enough because she's that ambitious? Well, you know, I mean, the other side of the coin was maybe we should be grateful if she's politically clueless. Because if she were politically astute, maybe that would have a worse outcome. I don't Look, know. Look, I, I think all is forgiven to her if she's a good justice. And, you know, I think the proof of the pudding in justices is in the eating. And there are a lot of justices who are appointed under peculiar conditions. And you don't, you don't ask... At the end of the day, the conditions of appointment are not the ones that govern how we think about them. It's how they do their jobs. That said, we don't have a lot of data from her yet. And so there's there's something about the, the ugly circumstances of the appointment that that necessarily loom larger. I mean, I'm thinking of Clarence Thomas. So, you know, sure. there was, there was uh, the first President Bush. Uh, standing out there saying, uh, I'm nominating someone who's the best qualified person in the country for the job. Now, Clarence Thomas who said, Mr. President, wait a minute. That, that, that's not true. I, I can't take a job under those conditions. You know, don't, don't say that. No, no, But I don't think those circumstances are quite parallel. I mean, I think the, the you know, the better example to me is Potter Stewart, um, or sorry, um, not Potter Stewart. Um, uh, sorry, this is uh, a head of the ABA, Virginia Lewis lawyer, Powell. Lewis Powell, who when he's initially approached by uh, Nixon says, I don't think my health can promise you more than 10 good years and tries to talk him out of it. And then, 
um, allows himself to be talked into it. But certainly, I can't promise you more than 10 good years is a lot that that's a lot more modest a debilitation than I will be forever compromised by the circumstances in which you appointed me. And I and we don't we, we think, you know, highly of Lewis Powell, even when we can't remember his name uh, for 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 that pause. And I do feel like there's something like the combination of there didn't seem to be even a pause and what Scott is saying that she went through this whole kind of act of like, yeah, and it's kind of normal after you're confirmed to go to a campaign rally at the White House. Uh, there's just something, there's something about it that rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, well, like, you know, anything that Trump touched, you know, like where to begin, so. Fortunately, Trump never touched Christopher Argyris, uh, who uh, has the floor. That's why I'm 5,000 miles away from <laughs> You kept yourself pure, man. Hi, hi, Linda. Um, great to have you on the show. Uh, I, I think a lot about the professional background of people who make it to the Supreme Court and the traditional way of you know, going to Harvard or Yale Law School and then having a top clerkship and then having the right sort of path. And, and I, I wonder... With the, with the Chief Justice having the dual roles of not only being the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, but being like the Chief Administrative Officer of the federal courts, whether there's any, how do we get to a point where we, we have more of a diverse background? Obviously the president nominates and, and, the, and the, uh, the, the Senate confirms. So it's, you know, you can't have the chief justice or anyone else telling the president, oh, don't pick people who only have this very narrow background. But how, how do we get back to a point where we have uh, more of a more of a diverse professional background of people on the Supreme Court? I know like Senator Dale O'Connor at her time was the only justice in, in her day who had actually tried a case. Uh, and then you had, you know, you, you mentioned Clarence Thompson. He was and he and Rehnquist had served in an administration. Uh, so I'd done other jobs besides just clerkships and being uh, on the screen, uh, going to a top law school. How, how do we, what is sort of the project of getting more, like obviously we want diversity of people, but how do we get more diversity of backgrounds on the corner? Yeah, I think that's um, not something that's going to be easily achieved. I mean, the, the trajectory has been, at uh, the high point of the Warren Court, there was not a single member of that court, including Chief Justice Warren, who had ever been a judge before they became a Supreme Court justice. They were taken from the highest ranks of politics. And, and you know, I think that was quite consistent with the framers view of the matter that people would be taken from public life and, and, and serve on the court. So, so why did that change? I think it changed um, it's reflection of the polarization of the confirmation process because if the president sends up somebody with these guilt edge credentials, oh, you know, an Ivy League law school and a Supreme Court clerkship. I mean, this is true, by the way, of many, many of Trump's more than 200 judicial appointments in the lower courts. I mean, if you look at their 
paper credentials. Nobody can say, I mean, the ABA did say in some situations they're not qualified, but that wasn't because of, you know, the, the, the kind of, you know, frontline paper credentials. And so, uh, you know, these credentials are kind of, have served to sort of cut off conversation about, oh, that nominee is not qualified. And it's, it's, it's hard to think that, it's hard to think that we'll go back. I mean, Amy Barrett is distinguished because she went to Notre Dame and she's the only uh, member of the court without an Ivy League law school background. Now she did clerk on the Supreme Court, she clerked for Scalia. Um, but the fact that she went to Notre Dame, I, you know, kind of distinguishes her, is a mark of diversity, you know, I guess of, of a sort. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I you know, it doesn't, it may not sound like it, but, but it's a no joke difference between her and the body of the court right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it didn't hurt her career that Trump's uh, White House counsel, uh, Don McGahn, is also a Notre Dame graduate. And, uh, and, you know, and it did, and it didn't hurt her career that uh, Antonin Scalia had a very deep philosophical engagement with uh, a lot of the faculty at Notre Dame. Absolutely, absolutely. Richard Wattenbarger, the floor is yours. Hello, um, I wanted to ask if you would speak um, about how both in theory and in practice the Roberts Court, at least as it's now constituted, views the separation of powers. And I'm thinking in particular about how deferential they seem to have been toward the executive branch as in when they uh, upholding Trump's travel bans. Um, and I'm wondering where is the limit to their deference? Um, and uh, is this a big question mark right now or do we have a good idea of that? Well, I think what's really interesting is will they be as deferential to the Biden administration as they were to the Trump administration, right? And, uh, you know, it's entirely possible that the era of deference to the executive branch is about to come to a crashing end. So there's uh, great interest on the part of some justices in reviving the non so-called non-delegation doctrine, uh, which um, holds that... Uh, you know, we're, we're not going to defer to, we're, we're going to regard, basically we're going to regard executive branch agencies as, as uh, illegitimate actors, unless they're carrying out the specific uh, instructions of Congress as, as um, committed to a to federal statutory language. And that's an issue lurking in the OSHA case that's uh, in the pipeline where the Fifth Circuit in a footnote says, um, Oh, by the way, not only, um, you know, is this an illegitimate use of OSHA to impose this vaccine mandate, but um, uh, if this is, if the broad view of OSHA's power that is implicit in this um, emergency action, if that's correct, then it runs up against the non-delegation doctrine. A doctrine which, by the way, has been used only twice in the country's history and not since the 1930s. So, you know, something quite radical may be afoot, and we may regard the error of executive branch deference as, uh, you know, part of, our, part of our legal history, but not part of the world that we're going to be living in.
speaking of, uh, of uh, radical uh, decisions, for, uh, could you look through your crystal ball for us and tell us what will happen in Dobbs, which is the Supreme Court case, which is challenging the anti-abortion statute in Mississippi? Yeah, so, you know, one thing I, I emphasize in the book, actually, is the power of the court's agenda-setting authority. So people on this call probably know the court basically has free reign in what cases it chooses to add to the docket. And when the court adds case to the docket, it's basically setting not only its own agenda, but the legal agenda, and sometimes the social and political agenda for the country. So uh, the court had a real struggle in deciding what to do with the Dobbs case, which was, which is Mississippi's appeal from the lower court judgment that invalidated, as it had to do, uh, Mississippi's 50 ban on abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, flagrantly unconstitutional under current law. So the question is, does current law still obtain? The court spent months deciding whether to grant this case and under what terms to grant it. Um, I don't know what happened within the, the black box of the justices' conference, but but we see that it was listed week after week after week for the, for the private conference. So why did they take this case, right? The court had turned down many, many uh, kind of bald-faced challenges to Roe against Wade over a long period of years. Uh, the red states are uh, flooding the courts with unconstitutional abortion laws, and of course they're always struck down by the lower courts because on their face they're unconstitutional, and lower courts are bound by Supreme Court precedents. There's no conflict in the circus, which is the primary marker for the court's um, willingness to exercise its certiorari authority. The only reason to have taken this case is because they don't like that there's a critical mass that wants to do something. This is a vehicle to do something. Now, what exactly are they going to use it to explicitly overturn Roe versus Wade? Or are they going to do something that looks more moderate than that, but will inevitably have the same functional effect? So why do I put it that way? Fetal viability has been, since Roe almost 50 years ago, the firewall that has protected the right to abortion. You can have all kinds of regulations. You can make a woman jump through all kinds of hoops and say all kinds of things and hear all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, before fetal viability, she gets to terminate the pregnancy. Mississippi's ban at 15 weeks, months before viability is obviously flagrantly unconstitutional. If the court allows Mississippi to breach that firewall at 15 weeks, in my opinion, there is no limiting principle that would stop Texas. The Texas law is six weeks. Arkansas is considering zero weeks, fertilization, a complete ban on abortion. Uh, you know, where do you go? And you can call it bananas, but if the court allows a state to ban abortion before viability, that is functionally overturning Roe against Wade, in my view. Paula, you're a green rectangle and the floor is yours. <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, so I was wondering from the outside looking in, especially as a 1-0 where I'm starting to learn about the politics of SCOTUS decisions, I might be exaggerating the theatrics, but what goes on between the Chief Justice and the conservative justices that are newer and what sway he might have? Because I think I am shocked like some other people um, by some of the decisions that they've made that haven't been totally conservative um, or split along political lines. If, if I heard you right, and I'm not sure I did. So what's going on between the chief justices and, and the conservative justice, justice to his right? Was that the point? Yes, but more the newer justices. Um, what is his dynamic with them, given that they might not have established themselves on the court yet? I'm not, I'm not sure I caught the whole question. And can you, can you relay it to I me? I think she's asking what we what we know about the, about the dynamics between the chief justice and the newer conservative justices, uh, given that uh, they are relatively unestablished on the court and yet seem to be sort of outflanking him on a bunch of things. Uh, um I think the chief's real nemesis on the court, frankly, is not one of the new ones. It's Sam Alito. And, um, you know, I kind of chronicle as the, as the term goes on. He's also my nemesis, by the way. I just want to say that. <laughs> He's also your nemesis. Alito or, or Roberts? That, that, that Alito is Roberts. Alito. Alito. I see. Um, I didn't know you had a nemesis, Scott, no, no. Other, than, other than Rick Rennell. Yeah, right. the, uh, yeah. It, to, a, to a lesser degree, Gorsuch. I mean, they seem to be um, sort of gunning for Roberts whenever they think he's wimped out on something. They call him out in very impolite terms. Um, so I can't think that those relationships are very good. Um, uh, you know, Rick Kavanaugh, I would not put in that category. I think. Um, uh, Kavanaugh's a pretty weak read, but he's he's given Roberts a little bit of cover from time to time. Um, you know, Amy Garrett is too, really too soon to to say much. Uh, you know, I mean, here we are um, halfway through November. The court has not yet had an actual merits opinion yet so far this term. So, um, uh, you know, we don't have we don't have many data points, but. Um, I, uh, Alito's behavior during the last term really, um, I found quite striking. Yeah, he seemed um, he seemed oddly angry all the time for a person who was uh, essentially always in the majority. Correct. I mean, I have no idea what this man is angry about. I mean, because he doesn't get his way all the time. I mean, okay, you know, go back to kindergarten, but um, you know, it, 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 it's a puzzle. Yeah. A concerned citizen. You get to express your concerns now. Thank you all for another great episode. My question is, do you think that it is appropriate for people to be talking about expansion of the Supreme Court as a response to the recent history of Obama's appointment of Garland being obstructed and Amy Comey Barrett's appointment being rushed against the dying wish of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Okay, that audio came through kind of muffled to me. Then can you translate? Yep, 
he said, uh, are, is it appropriate for people to be talking about court expansion in light of uh, the uh, 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 holding of the Merrick Garland uh, nomination and then the rushed through appointment uh, of of Amy Coney Barrett, given the um, given the election and the uh, dying wish of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Is it appropriate to talk about court expansion? Sure. I mean, that's a matter. Of, you know, Congress can set any number of justices that it wants to. Uh, you know, will, will this go anywhere? Um, no. But. Um, you know, I don't think any of these notions about what to do about the court will, will go anywhere, but I think it's been a useful exercise to, um, you know, focus attention on the court because really what what the exercise amounts to is, you know, what do we expect out of the court? What's the role, what's the appropriate role of the court? Uh, to what extent is it fulfilling that role or, or, or not? So, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad there's a lot of talk about it, uh, even though I, I don't actually think anything's going to change. What, what do you make of the fact that a lot of, um, well, there was Coney Barrett, there was uh, Clarence Thomas, I believe Alito, it, it talked about the uh, non-political nature of the court. There's a lot of almost angst I hear um, from from them um, talking about it. And of course, on the other side, um, um, Breyer. Breyer writes a book about it. But the, on the conservative side, do you think that there is anxiety that by jamming through um, first Gorsuch uh, through Merrick Garland, and then at the end, Coney Barrett, that they have kind of poisoned the chalice, or they don't care. I mean, it's... It, it, oh, I, it, I, don't, I don't detect any answer at all. I mean, this is their moment. And, and you know, this is the culmination of a very long project, uh, you know, decades long, of uh, by conservatives who realizing that their agenda was not one with broad popular support that was going to make this really interesting process. So, uh, you know, whatever it means, I think that suggests that they are going to go um, uh, full throttle on Dobbs. Um, I've read uh, it, the, there. There have been um, several articles recently in the conservative press about um, what would happen to the conservative legal movement if they don't um, uh, overrule Roe versus Wade. And I, I was wondering if you think that this is a dog catches car moment where they get what they want and. You know, I think a, a large number of Americans will be kind of wake up one day and surprised that um, something that they took for granted has now been, that is the right of reproductive freedom, has been dislodged. Um, what's your take on that? Well, you know, it, it, 
my, my take is one of frustration because if anybody wakes up surprised, kind of shame on them because the science have been evident for a whole long time. You know, I mean, in, in, in the 2016 election, when, when McConnell said after, after 2016 that the proudest moment of his entire political life was holding the Scalia seat open because he thinks the pendency of that vacancy was what elected Donald Trump because it was so motivating to the base. Why weren't Democrats equally motivated? The future of the Supreme Court was, you know, up for grabs. But yet polling shows that uh, for conservatives, the vacancy was highly motivating. For liberals, it was just one among many things that were floating around in the air. So, you know, what will happen if uh, the dog catches the car and, and Roe is overturned? I would like to think that there would be a huge mobilization and that Republicans who gave their blessing to this chain of events uh, will uh, wake up full of regret. Um, am I sure that will happen? Yeah, I'm certainly happen. not, sure even, not. Though even though polling indicates that 80% of, of the public across all demographics does not want the court to overturn Roe. Uh, so, you know, this will be a, a democratic inflection point. We'll, we'll get to see it in, in, in real life and real time. Well, on that uplifting note, uh, I, 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 let's, uh, we're going to wrap up. I want to thank Linda Greenhouse, the great Linda Greenhouse, for joining us, for enlightening us about um, a very tumultuous but extremely interesting Supreme Court term. We should all go and order uh, her book, uh, Justice on the Brink, uh, available. It, it pubs tomorrow, right? It was published last Tuesday. Oh, last Tuesday. Okay. It is so already it's, available. Already it's available. already available. So, uh, if you if you if you want to understand uh, the current court, you must read this book. Um, thank you so much, Linda, for joining us. Uh, it is. Uh, we will be back. Oh my God! Twenty-two hours and fifty-nine minutes. Is that right? Okay. Um, uh, 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 with somebody, uh, 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 <laughs> um, but in the me uh, but in the meantime, Ben, we don't have fun anymore, and uh, we don't even have a divided court anymore. We have a majority and minority court, um, and. Uh, there's uh, not a lot of ambiguity about it. Right. So true. true. See you tomorrow. Thank you, Linda.